Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome to another exciting episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you your adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet and plus snowfall this season. Um, and I, who knows what it is by the time this comes <laughs> out. We're a little punchy right now, a little, little chuckly on our end, right, Stace? It's Friday, what, you know, what do you expect? <laughs> We're on Friday and it's been fun so far and we are... Equally uh, pleased to be joined by our producer, Doug. Hey, Doug. Hi, Doug. Hello. How's it going, guys? Good. <laughs> punchy. Happy, punchy, it's, like you said. It's good, good Friday. It's a good, yeah. good yeah. Friday. That's for sure. Record. We are recording during Passover, Good Friday, Easter week. So yes. hope everyone who celebrates had a good holiday by the time this comes out. At any rate, um, still lots of snow on the ground. No surprise to our listeners, but Stace, you and I took advantage of it, right? We did. We we had a snow sh- a meeting on snowshoes, <laughs> and that was that was our adventure. It was it was such a beautiful day. Now that we're past these mega storms every Tuesday <laughs> that occurred from January to through the end of March. Um, we actually had some sunshine this last week and you and I got out there on our snowshoes and, um, yeah, parked over by the welcome center and found a, found a path like up the steep <laughs> incline. Um, it was fun. Isn't it funny? Like, it, you know, we've been snowshoeing, um, a couple times this winter. Wills is doing it more than I am. Um, and then just running into people who are, you know, doing skiing on the country or whatever. And normally you kind of pull off the road, there's some parking, and then you kind of, you know, you kind of walk right. towards the trail. And sometimes it's groomed, or maybe you're not in a groomed area. But everywhere this winter, it always involves, if you can find the safe parking completely right. off the way yes. or the road, because um, it's not always there, just given the harshness of the winter, <laughs> you kind of have to, um, like, climb up the side of a hill a mountain you know scaling a wall yeah it's it's really true and and you're you're absolutely right that finding parking has been super difficult anywhere i for us to do this meeting i had to call the town and say where can we park because this is what we want to do because all of the the usual spots are all covered in snow and you know you have to find a safe place but you're right it's like scaling this huge steep mountain just to go snowshoeing you use some different muscles it's but it's so much fun it's so worth it it is fun and what i you know i this is probably my middle age speaking but i enjoy snowshoeing because it's you get the cardio but it's not like you're running and and Mm -hmm. have you but you're out and you can have a meeting and chat with a good friend while you're you know doing your loop so it's, it is, it's, it was great. And I've one thing since I've lived here and worked here, that's something I've always tried to do is to have walking meetings or snowshoers, cross country skiing meetings or whatever. Um, just to be outside, it just puts you in a different frame of mind. 
It does. And sometimes it, it's more, it leads you to be more creative or, you know, really process difficult situations that you might be going through. Being outside has a whole different lens, a whole different element to it. It totally does, especially at this time of year when spring is still springing. Um, the sun, <laughs> the sun is hitting yes. a different angle, right? So mm-hmm. a little bit warmer, even though there's still snow. Um, and it just, I think everybody mentally is starting to climb out of this fog we've been in for so long. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just a whole different, everybody's in a different mindset right, right now, because we've had that, we've had the sun shining and even though today, not so much, but it's supposed to be back out in force tomorrow and looking forward to that. But it's, um, yeah. And shady rest is such a beautiful place. It, you know, sometimes one of the advantages, I think, actually, to having so much snow is that it's mitigated the snowmobilers that go out there. Right. And so it it's just really quiet. They haven't even done the tracking for cross-country skis because there's so much snow. So really, it's just open for anybody. And it, it was just quiet and beautiful and... um. It'll be interesting to see how long the sun, the snow stays <laughs> there, <laughs> you know, with, with the sun, like you said, at a higher angle out for longer hours of the day, you know, we're all anticipating it melting and what that's going to bring. Totally. Um, all around the area. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I, we will say, like, you know, I've been up and down the county a few times in the last couple of weeks, and we usually go snowshoeing around Obsidian Dome and um, the campground out there. And, you know, there's usually ample off-street off right. parking. It's not yeah. quite fully plowed yet. There's some. So we just, you know, encourage you to be safe when you go yes. out to do this. And speaking of the, you know, the snowmobiles and others who are out, doing, um, you know, enjoying that kind of high speed stuff out on the snow outside of town. Uh, just beware of the equipment that's being parked off the highways too. There was that right. from Caltrans or, or whoever at Crestview that they had to plow a long street, you know, kind of there at Crestview to store their equipment overnight. But again, that's a plow. That's a Canyon that if you're coming at it from an angle, you can't see that it's there. And then suddenly right. a 12 foot drop with a snowplow city. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So be, be careful where you go. Try, try to stay in places that, you know, is accessible for people and where people are supposed to be and be, right. be, be mindful of, of what's going on around. And, you know, you're absolutely right because in some places when you're, even when you're driving around town, the snow berms are so huge that even making a, a right or left-hand turn on from one street to another is a dangerous proposition. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely that season where you start to see cars with, you know, kind of cracked turn signal lights yep. and painted bumpers. And you kind of know where those things come from. So Absolutely. <laughs> but we we had a great time. We did. And it, we have to do it again. Well, we'll probably sure. be able to do this well into July at this point. I, th- I think so. I think so. So listeners, if you've gotten out there on your snowshoes, tell us where you went and how you found the conditions and stay tuned. We'll be right back. Yep, that's right. You're uh, atop the majestic Sierra Nevada, somewhere mm, right about 
11,000 feet. You're exhilarated, but a little challenged. At the same time, the abundant altitude makes for not-so-abundant oxygen. And breathing deep is a deliberate choice. You sit down, you pour yourself some tea from a thermos in your pack. You're listening to the Oxygen Starved Podcast. Bi-weekly chats on Mono County Adventure and on the world of books and literature. Chats with East Side denizens who help make the place pretty darn cool. Chats hosted by County Superintendent of Education Stacy Adler and Mono County Librarian Christopher Platt, both accustomed to the air up here. Thanks for making the trek. Christopher, the edge is a shantytown filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives and the law is skinny with hunger for us. What does that mean to you? <laughs> Put me on the spot, Stace. <laughs> you know, it is such a weird, weird sentence, right? It, or a couple of sentences there. It, it, it's very weird. And it for our listeners, so nobody thinks that I've completely lost it. That is those that is the phrase that is at the the heart of the novel Now is Not the Time to Panic by Kevin Wilson, who's a favorite author of this podcast. Yeah, we've spoken about him before, nothing to see here. Can you just re reread that sentence? I will read it again. The edge is a shanty town filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives, and the law is skinny with hunger for us. Skinny with hunger for us. I love that. Do you think uh, English students are going to be tearing that sentence apart for decades to come? They, they, quite possibly. I would love to be a sixth grade teacher again and have my students diagram that sentence. Remember when you have to used to do that? Um yeah, I mean, so at the heart, this novel is about two teenagers. Right. They're kind of quirky, loner types who kind of find each other one summer. And they, this, they, they develop this quote. One of them comes up with this, this quote, this sentence or sentences. And they create an art poster, an artistic poster that has these words on it and they, they make copies and they spread it all around their town without any context. These what? posters just kind of show up places and hijinks as we love to say ensue. <laughs> yeah. So this is um, uh, a couple of things here, right? This is a Kevin Wilson book and, and yeah. some of the reviewers when this book came out late last year were quick to point out, it's not quite as quirky as, you know, children who burst into flame, which is what happened right. to see here, or even the family fang, you know, with the, right. with the children who were part of their adults, parents, performance art troupe. Um, this is a little, you know, a little bit um, more intimate, at least I thought mm -hmm. so, and a little yep. less quirky, but these are still two outsider teenagers, right? Yes. And, you know, one's kind of, she's a budding writer and the other is kind of a budding artist, graphic artist. And so this is a way for them to do something. Yeah. They're very, they're very, like I said, they're, they're loners. They're kind of um, outsiders in their community in their small town in Tennessee. Yep. And they, 
kind of, they just kind of find each other one summer and it's kind of us, it's kind of them against the world in a sense. And when they, they make this poster and they find a copy machine in her garage, right. Frank, Frankie is the, the young lady, right. they find a copy machine and they make all these copies and they just go stealthily into the night and put them up everywhere. And it is really, I think, kind of a commentary on how art for one person can be something very different for another without any, con- when you don't have any context provided. Right. You know, this, this um, weird sentence that you're kind of struggling to understand put in this artistic frame, you know, and then you know, they're teenagers, right? They just happen to have a copier with a bunch of copy paper. Let's just make a gazillion copies of these and yep. go faster it around town, you know? Right. It's a very teenager thing to do. And, um, but again, that no context thing, you know, the, the townspeople, their friends, their neighbors start to comment on these posters. Right. And we should mention too, this takes place in the nineties. So this is before social media and, when we were having our snowshoe meeting, we were talking about this book and how it would have been a very different, it could have been a very different story had this been told in the present day when things are distributed on social media almost before they're finished. Right. No, entirely true. Right. Um, and one of the things, and this isn't giving away spoilers because some of this is in the jacket and some of these you can find in reviews is the people's reactions to this art without context, without knowing right. who the artists are, who is putting up these, these mystery posters, they ascribe their own reaction as the meaning, right? So exactly. Is this something insidious? Is this a cult? Is this, you know, what did someone, I think tried to say, this is a, a French philosopher's quote, right? You know, um, uh, you know, and so rumors start to build mm-hmm. on these posters appearing. And what I love is that some of, sometimes the people, uh, uh, other students or other people will make their own versions of it. Yes. And post their versions of it. So this is like 1990s going viral in mm-hmm. town Tennessee with this piece of art, really. That is it commentary? Is it not commentary? What is it? What does it say about their community that there's so many different reactions? Right, and then then it, it goes even bigger, right beyond their community, and how does how do those reactions impact them? And and you know, again, these are these are two like pubescent teenagers. So you know, not only have now they created this whole thing around this poster that that they just really had made originally for themselves right and you know so now they're dealing with all this fallout because it's no the notoriety is big like huge right from media you know over time books get written about it like and so when you're teenagers and that's happening you're like oh i've suddenly lost control of something right and and how how that loss of control of this thing then impacts their relationship and you know Kev, Kevin Wilson is is kind of a quirky dude himself 
Yeah. I, I love his books. I just, totally do. Y- you know, and, but you know, he, I watched a few interviews that he did for this book, which again is called now is not the time to panic. Um, you know, and he talks about how this book is so personal for him, you know, that not only was this quote, a quote that a friend of his said to him, you know, that he, he has said to himself every day of his life since, but that, you know, having lived through that, you know, the growing up and growing pains of being a teenager who was kind of on his own, you know, the idea of being seen for the first time by a peer is so powerful. And you see that illustrated in this book. That's, that's, that's what's grabbed me too. I think we watched a couple of the same interviews and, mm-hmm. you know, he was this quirky teenager. He's since been um, diagnosed with Tourette's. So he, he acknowledges that he was quirky, kind of a loner himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, this friend of his who he met, I think that he was just in college and the guy, right. a friend of his brothers and just kind of a quirky dude himself. And he's the one who originated this sentence. Right. Is. And, you know, surprisingly, you know, I think Kevin, appears to be surprised how much impact that phrase had on him mm-hmm. he said he is kind of became his mantra for right. every year since then mm-hmm. now in his i think early 40s or late 30s or something and he tried to use it before he used it in the family thing apparently i want to go back and reread that. me too <laughs> but then he got to the point where he felt this phrase needed to have a story of its own yeah and that's what this this book is and you know a, a couple of things. One is it's, it is this kind of power of something that you create something and then suddenly it's not yours anymore, right? right. Someone else's and they're going to affix their own backstory to it. They're going to affix right. their own context to it. That comes out in this book. We won't say how, but in a couple of times it's tragic. Right. Um, but it then becomes this urban legend. And mm-hmm. when it gets a life of its own, this creation of yours what is your responsibility um, to own up to it? Even right. if you're a teenager or years later when it's still being talked about and now you're an adult, do you own up to it? You know? Yeah. And, and I go ahead. No, it's just that's just like another really vibrant theme of this book is what is your responsibility to something you created as a kid? So what it made me think of was two things. And and I think you'll remember this first one too, because it was always in the, you know, kind of the news when we were growing up, there was an, I think it's like early Edwardian England. There were two girls, two or three girls who had a book of fairy illustrations Mm -hmm. Yeah, fairies out and they had a camera and they went to the bottom of their garden and posed with these illustrations and said that they were real fairies. And it was obviously a hoax, but not at the time. Like it was, Was this real? Did yeah. the girls actually get photographic evidence of, of fairies? And, um, you know, I think they ended up fessing up about it as adults. But, you know, for a good portion of their life, they didn't fess up. Right. And it was um, something that people talked about. Is this real or is it a hoax? Right. And then the – so that I think has kind of got a parallel story to what's happening in now is not the time to panic. And then in terms of responsibility, I think of that artist Banksy. Banksy. Yeah. Right. Who does the spray painting on the sides of buildings and, but he does it, you know, 
in the dead of night when no one's looking in, you know, then they had people are like, Ooh, is that a Banksy? Is it not a Banksy? Is he going to own up to it? Well, and now he's become like this, you know, people would beg him to come and, right. you know, spray paint the side of their building or, you know, he's like a really famous dude. <laughs> yeah. Literally like take the sides of their buildings off with his artwork on it and, yeah. them, and then just rebuild the wall. Like, yeah. So that's an instance of, of something kind of similar to what's going on in this yeah. book. Those are the two things that, that kind of stuck out to me. Then the other thing that stuck out to me, and I'm curious to hear your reaction to this days is, you know, it's Frankie and Zeke, the, yep. the two teenagers, a girl and a guy. Um, you know, most of the action takes place while they're teenagers, but there is also this kind of, from many years later, looking, looking back really, mm-hmm. when they're both adults. And it made me think of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And that relationship, those two characters had, right? Definitely. Definitely. This reminded me of Sam and Sadie's relationship. You know, they're, they're all creators, right? Right. They all have, there's some, it's a male feel female relationship that is, friends it's not really anything more but maybe one of them wants more you know um absolutely i had the same the same recollection uh to that to that book as well reading this and the relationship between the two even though for the majority of the books frankie and zeke are a little bit younger than sadie and sam and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow but you could see the very very similar trajectories of those relationships yeah um maybe there was something in the water with authors in the last couple of years <laughs> just, and not quite close to each other yeah it may be or maybe it's you know i wonder um if some of if the authors in this case gabriel zevin and kevin wilson weren't influenced you know by the fact that we were all potted together during covid and right. you know our, our relationships that we have with those around us tighten so much more. Yeah. And I, I think especially, and cause he's talked about this in, in interviews that Kevin Wilson, it was, you know, this friendship he had with this dude who came up with a frame mm-hmm. lasted so long. Um, definitely influenced him writing this book. Yeah, I will say, you know, I hope we're doing the plot a little justice, right? It's two teens who kind of just, go off and do some wacko thing and then hijinks ensue, just as you said. Mm-hmm. And it poses a lot of questions. I think this will be a great book discussion title. Yeah. There's, there is a lot to unpack here. So if you have a book club, yeah, strongly, this is a great recommendation for any book club out there because there's so much to unpack, you know, not, not just the relationship, but as we were saying, you know, what is the, what is an artist's responsibility to what they create? And that's something that I think he tries to answer in the close of the book um, without giving anything away. I'm not so sure he does. And maybe it's a little ambiguous. I don't know. Um, But I'd be curious to hear what our readers think. I will say, you know, again, we like Kevin Wilson's writing. This to me felt a little more personal than some of his other books. And Mm -hmm. in his interviews, you understand why. Um, And I will say, I listened to the audio book which was really well narrated by a professional. And then there was an author's end note at the end read by Kevin himself, where he 
makes this story even more personal and more poignant. I won't give any more hints than that. Um, but I would recommend this book to anyone um, who just wants to think after they close the covers a little. And, and, and not only think after they close the covers, but really have a great ride while you're reading this story. It's just, you really, you like the characters, you want to see what's going to happen. It is, it is, I found it to be a page turner, you know, um, reading. I, I wanted to see what was going to happen next. And I, I just, I just loved it. It's one of my favorite books of the year so far. I, I agree. And I'll just say one more theme there that because I forgot to say it earlier. We talked a little bit about like it's pre-social media, but it made yeah. me think about social media a lot just because these posters went viral. Yep. You know, and yep. today's what does viral mean and people, you know, the memification of posts and stuff like that, versions of that happen here. Yes. Um, it really made me think just about the iPhone I carry around in my pocket all the time. Yes. And and again, how how different this story would have been had it been in been told in the age of social media, and I'm I'm glad it wasn't. Right, exactly. So, so this book is called "Now Is Not the Time to Panic." It's by Kevin Wilson. Really encourage you. We both encourage you to pick it up, check it out, and then if you do, let us know what you think. And in the meantime, we will be right back. You are dialed in to Oxygen Starved the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the C conversation portion of our podcast, one of my favorite parts of the podcast, right, Stace? Yep, me too. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> you know, we've had some great guests on recently, and this week we are really honored and um, happy to welcome Paul McFarland, um, program officer for the DeChambeau Creek Foundation. Welcome, Paul. Welcome, Paul. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> we appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. It's been a very, very busy season. So, um, Paul, I'm sure some of our listeners already know who you are, um, so they will, can grade you separately on this. But tell those of us who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be in the Eastern Sierra. <laughs> Rad. Um, let's see. I've been around the east side, at least permanently, uh, for about 24 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, I first came to this Eastern Sierra as a kid with my family, mm -hmm. um, in the summer, not every summer, but, uh, every now and then. And ever since I was in college at UC Davis, I, um, was able to live for a summer in Bishop at the White Mountain Research Station with the White Mountains mm -hmm. behind me doing a geology field camp. And sitting on that porch out there, staring at the Sierra in front and the whites in the back, just made me utterly fall head over heels for this place. And I just remember sitting on that porch during a thunderstorm thinking, you know, as a 20-year-old, this is where the West begins. Everything on the other <laughs> side is California. <laughs> you know, this, this is the place. I mean, the beauty of the East Side, at least from somebody... For me, with a geologic background, 
you can stand in any one place and within a few hours drive or even walk, you can pick up some of the oldest rocks in North America, as well as some of the youngest, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, from stuff that's being deposited today to trilobites and the whites that are 500 million years old. It's all right in front of us. I mean, that's what's so cool about this place. And with the massive, amount of public lands we have that are going to stay the way they are you can go wherever you want i mean i grew up in southern california a place called uh, thousand oaks um spanish tile wonderland pretty right. much <laughs> and um all the places that i went as a kid to fossil hunt to first learn birds and plants i just watched those be get developed and so the concept of public versus private places Um, was something I learned early on and as I've grown older have really tried to seek out and stay in places with access to large public wild spaces and um, luckily we've my family and I we've been able to make it work for a little over two decades now. So Paul did you come did you come here to live permanently right out of college right after Davis? No I uh I had a little bit of a peripatetic post-college <laughs> time. I went to the East Coast and taught outdoor school in New York State, which was wacky coming from Southern California in the desert, all of a sudden being surrounded by a literal broadleaf forest. Right. <laughs> you can actually see the air because there's so much water. Like, that was new. <laughs> um, and then lived in Sacramento for a long time, did the obligatory stay for people of my ilk up in um, Arcata in Humboldt County, and then slowly made my way to work for the Forest Service on the west side of the Sierra, and then ended up over here in Levining actually as an intern with the Mono Lake Committee. Oh, wow. Okay. But an older intern, you know, kind of the extern. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, once I landed that job here, um, never wanted to leave and really quickly re- met a whole bunch of folks who were active in public lands conservation at the time. Um, they had a group called friends of the Inyo mm-hmm. that hadn't had any staff. It was basically just a super effective letterhead and, um, worked with them to raise a little bit of money. And then I became the first staff person there and been oh, wow. since. So you, you were the first uh, director. I was the first, I was a conservation associate at the beginning. Didn't get the executive director moniker until (laughs) we got some organizational planning money. (laughs) (laughs) But then I I did that for about 10 years. Um, Then actually we moved. We left for a while. My wife wanted to go back to school. And she she got into UC Santa Cruz into their teaching program for a master's. Mm -hmm. And we moved over. You know, we ripped up our roots here, which was really hard. I kind of right. felt like a Jeffrey pine falling over, <laughs> um, moved to Santa Cruz, which was beautiful. It was awesome to experience another landscape and you never really appreciate a campfire until you walk away from it and then look back yeah. at it and look back at the fire reflected on everybody's faces and the trees. And that was a good time. And I got to work in a beautiful place over there. Uh, I got to work in Big Sur in the back mm. with a group called Ventana Wilderness Alliance and was their first executive director. And then we moved back over here after she was done with school and um, have made sure we haven't left again. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a journey, though. But it's 
it's a familiar one to me listening to you talk for a couple of reasons. One that, you know, we came here as a kid or in high school on family vacations to camp or hike or whatever. I love hearing those stories um, because that kind of speaks to the pull of the area to certain people, right? It's like a gravitational thing. You experience it and you want to be there more. And then um, I'm sure Stace, you picked up on the mm-hmm. uh, geological background. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, Paul, I think you know my husband, who's our our podcast geologist, Joe. Um, <laughs> so I have to ask: Do you are you a bit of a, a rock hound still? Do you still go out and you know look for finds and and? Oh, I do constantly, and and I know rocks don't work well on radio, but I am yeah. holding, <laughs> holding up rocks. Here. <laughs> I'm holding a couple rocks now. One of the, this one right here. This tan rock, this is actually uh, freshwater snail shells from Ice Age Mono Lake on the east right. side where Mono Lake spilled into the Benton Hamill Chalfont Valleys at the spillway. Wow. And this is some large crystalline horn blend from a mine on Williams Butte, which is just south of Levining here. So one of the rad things about when people find out you have a geologic background is all of a sudden these rocks that they've had hidden in their pocket, their house or their yep. car, they magically appear. Oh, and yeah. like, what are these? Yep. And that's the raddest thing about geology is it is the most storytelling based science. It, it is. And, and I've, I've heard the stories over and over and over and over, <laughs> but they, I enjoy them still. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, no, I love the whole notion of, you know, and, and still today when I talk to friends who aren't familiar with the area about Eastern Sierra and the White Mountains for that matter, um, just the notion that you can go fossil hunting for um, seabed creatures at an elevation, you know, that's like eight, mm-hmm. that they're astounded by that. And that, and that just kind of opens that whole tale of tectonic shifts and, all, you know, how mountains got created and all this stuff. It's just fascinating to me still, you know. Yeah, if we ever need a dose of humility, just pick up a rock. <laughs> you know, and the the beautiful thing is when you when you pick up that rock, you can tell so much about where it was picked up, how it came to be a small rock, how it was eroded off a larger rock, what the story of that larger rock was, and put your place in time, just like when you open the pages of a book. That's what was rad for me about geology is it taught me how to read the landscape. And that's something that I've just enjoyed my whole life. You guys probably remember Richard Scarry's a children's author. Mm -hmm. Everything in Richard Scarry's book has a little name next to it. I have that problem too. Every time I go outside, (laughs) you know, these chickadees are flying around. They've got mountain chickadees and a bubble. Jeffrey pine, limber pine, (laughs) alien sandstone. You know, it's like everything has a story, but those stories, when you know their names, it's like knowing the names of your family and your neighbors, because then there's a principle of emergence that happens once you know the name, because you put things together and everything has context and mm-hmm. everything has relationships. Right. And that's one of the most fun things about natural history and living here. We're just stewing in it all the time. I mean, you are everywhere. There's, you know, there's natural history in downtown San Francisco. That's just, you know, to die for, but here it's um, easy to see hard to ignore. Yeah. 
And it, it makes it feel so close. You, you feel a part of it when you know what all those, all those little names are next to the, the tree or the bird or. And it's easier to spot, you know, than say downtown thousand Oaks these days. Right. So, um, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but growing up in a suburban area, you know, one of the things I look back and I'm lucky on is, or lucky about is that, uh, my friends and I at the time, we found a way to make beauty out of that concrete and then mm-hmm. we, we skated. We were skate. We were those dudes getting arrested in front of the bank. <laughs> you know, I, I did show up to the Eastern Sierra with a record <laughs> and it was all due to skateboarding. But, you know, if, if you're living in an environment like that and you have the tendency to be kinetic and want to move around, what a more beautiful way to make a suburban landscape alive, mm-hmm. you know, than to jump on it and grind it and just cruise around and turn it into a little playland. Yeah, right. That was a really fun way to grow up. And my, my oldest son, Solomon skateboards now, but you know, he doesn't have hundreds of thousands of acres of concrete to enjoy it on. So, <laughs> so he's out there in our pebbly street, you know, whenever the s- snow's melted enough, just doing kickflips. <laughs> oh, well. well, he's making it work for him, right? <laughs> oh, totally. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the beauty of so many folks here is watching people make this place work because there's so many opportunities in the East yeah. side. And that's what makes our community so rich is like, how are you going to make this place work? You know, everybody here is figuring something out yeah. every day. You're not just falling into a niche. You know, you're really, cause it's, it's not easy to be here day in, day out, socially, financially, economically, yeah. you know, you make it work. It's definitely people that are, are passionate about the area. Um, and speaking of that, uh, you talked a little bit about some of the roles you've had, but can you tell us a little bit more about the DeChambeau Creek Foundation, how it came to be, where the name comes from, all that good stuff? Yeah, totally. So the DeChambeau Creek Foundation was started by um, a longtime resident of the Mono Basin. Her name was Jan Simus. She lived up in the northwest corner of the basin. Um, she owned 135 acres of undeveloped land out in that northwest corner. And, you know, the folks that know a, the piece of property that size in the eastern Sierra that's privately owned is relatively rare. Right. Most of our land is owned by all of us, Forest Service BLM, or mm-hmm. it's owned by the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Right. Right. So Jan bought this land in the 50s, um, had a little cabin on it, lived there for the majority of her life. And when Jan passed away, she established the DeChambeau Creek Foundation to manage her land in perpetuity. Um, and along with that land management direction, the foundation was also provided a bequest. Um, and what the foundation uses that bequest for now is to continue to manage and enhance the land, use it as a teaching landscape, as well as to foster meaningful connection with place and one another through community investment, natural and cultural history, education, conservation science, and the arts. So we've grown into a small locally based community foundation, um, inspiring connections between people and place. Can you tell 
It is very cool. Can you, and I like that someone had the foresight to make that donation and make that investment in their community for the long run. Can you talk a little bit about, cause you mentioned you have a, an early background in outdoor education and you mentioned this has a teaching landscape. What does that mean for people who might not be familiar with that? So, um, we take kids from Levining Elementary School. Uh, we just started this program last spring. Uh, we had meant to start the program, but then there was COVID, um, which seems like four years ago. But it's still yeah, here. yeah. Um, and isn't it crazy living in a time of continual disruption? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One word for it. Yes. Yes. So we, um, we basically take kids out to the property and we have a number of different themes that we walk folks through. Um, we talk about the cultural connection to the place. Um, the fact that the land has been inhabited by multiple different peoples for a very long time. And then we do a lot of hands-on, very simple natural history with the trees, the creeks, the uh, animals that are out there. The foundation's land also hosts, um, educational groups. Uh, UCSC is one of the main ones. They have a natural history field quarter. That's university of California, Santa Cruz acronym, um, out there every summer. And we try to tie the kids experiences on the land back into their classrooms. So Mm -hmm. for example, today, right before this call, I was over at the elementary school. We do a the foundation supports a March book month celebration because mm-hmm. March is national reading month. Right. Um, so we go into the classrooms the first week of March and we sit down with each kid individually and a scholastic catalog and each kid gets a budget and they get to buy as many nice. books as they want out of scholastic. And um, then we de- deliver them to the kids once they come in uh, this year though, what we were able to do for all the kids that came out on the property one of the last exercises that they did while they were out there was we do it in fall, of course. Right. So they were out, they got to gather up some leaves, put them in an envelope, write their name on it. And then last week I laminated all their leaves and kids got their leaf back from the land in their book. Oh, cool. Just tying, trying to tie place back to where they've been and have another, you know, touchstone of place, people, and now books with the kids. And we do that with both the elementary school as well as the high school here. And for the high school, instead of using good old scholastic, we rely on Dave at the bookie joint. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Dave. Right. Yeah. And actually um, the youth librarian from Mono County libraries is in the classroom or in the high school today, giving a presentation about how to look up books, how to choose books, how to dive in. And from that, they'll identify the book they want. And we go to Dave, order it, and then hand them back out. You know, anything to get tangible books into people's hands. Um, You know, many of us were lucky enough to grow up in homes where there were books present. I spent hours and hours and hours in, you know, National Geographic, Time Life, all that stuff, just big picture books. And, you know, the tangibility of a book is there's nothing like it. It's Kindle ain't ever going to have a page, (laughs) (laughs) you know, tangible stuff. (laughs) So, Paul, do you hit every is every single grade level in the district involved in this pre-K to seniors? Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. We love that. 
Um, yeah, Carissa did mention she was going up today. So I, I'm really pleased that that's happening because, you know, those of us of our generation, we remember scholastic book fairs and reading is fundamental and the excitement of being able to choose your own book that you get to keep. That's, there's something very, very meaningful in that. And I like how you're tying it back to the land with the bookmarks. That's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And that everybody gets something. I mean, I think right. we all remember those scholastic days where some folks got books and some kids didn't, but this way everybody gets to choose. It's equitable. It's open. And what's rad is the conversations you get to have sitting down with the kids while they're doing their ordering. That piece is really fun Yeah, as well. That's awesome. That would be great. So you sound like you're very, very busy involved <laughs> in so many different things. What do you like to do when you have time to have some fun? Oh, man. Anything that I can, I mean, being outside, of course, is number one. Um, I wish I read more. Um, I'm lucky enough to watch my kids read a lot. Mm -hmm. I do the dishes. They read. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Fair trade. Yeah, just just being outside. I mean, I I ski when I I cross-country ski when I can. I ride my bike as much as I can. Um, get outside with my kids. My middle son, his favorite thing to do is make lunch outside. He has a little solo stove that he loves to use. So we go on <laughs> little adventures and he cooks lunch and he's just, you know, happy as a clam cooking food outside. That's and great. my daughter is one of my favorite cross country ski partners. Um, and then my, with my oldest son, skate or fish. That's, those are pretty much the only two things he wants to do. <laughs> and then my wife, Miss Garcia, who's also a seventh, eighth grade teacher at the school. Um, you know, we cook a lot. We hang out as a family. Um, we do a lot of chores because we have a 110 year old house. And right. this winter, wow. as we all know, has stressed every single built structure yes. <laughs> in the Eastern Sierra. So lately, I've been doing a lot of home maintenance. Yeah. <laughs> you are not alone. <laughs> no. In fact, I don't I don't know of one homeowner in Mono County who's not doing a lot of home maintenance this this winter. I think we're we're all feeling that. <laughs> yeah, I mean as if we needed a tangible metaphor for the, you know, transience of our stuff. <laughs> Just bury it under snow and then watch it emerge and you're like, "Oh, that broke." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean and then as a volunteer, I'm a member of the Levining Volunteer Fire Department. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a board member for the Levining Public Utility District, which is our gravity-fed water and sewer system here for town. Um, and, you know, just try to to be of service. That's one of the reasons I think that many of us find joy in life is, you know, being of service to our neighbors, being part of a community and I'm glad to live in a place where that culture is still really active. Yeah. Yeah. Community and service oriented community. You definitely see it. Um, Paul, you know, we've already mentioned books and we're kind of a book podcast and you, you're here. So we're at the point now, do you have some books you're reading now or books you would recommend to our listeners? Oh yeah. Um, so many, um, (laughs) (laughs) not your entire library, just your favorite. (laughs) It's funny that, um, you know, I just finished a book last night by Hayao Miyazaki, uh, Mm -hmm. is a 
Japanese author as well as a director and producer, Studio Ghibli, people might know of, Princess mm-hmm. Mononoke. Um, this is Shuna's Journey. It was a book that Miyazaki wrote in the early 80s, 83 to be exact. And it mm-hmm. it's really cool because it's you see a lot of the themes and motifs of especially of strong, committed female heroines take shape in this early work. And then you see that again in Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke. Um, and so my wife bought me this for as an Easter present. And that's been a really fun book. But as far as like books without tons of pictures, um, I have very late in life come to utterly enjoy Willa Cather. Oh, right. Oh, and okay. um, a friend asked me if I would uh, officiate a wedding in Santa Fe. And I did that in December. And when I was, you know, thinking about Santa Fe, somebody said, Oh, you should read death comes for the archbishop, which is all about Santa Fe and the story of father Latour and father Viant, which is so beautiful. Their friendship is beautiful. The way Cather writes about the Southwest was beautiful. Um, and then having, and then getting to go to Santa Fe and see that, which, you know, if you ever, if you've been to Santa Fe, one of the things that really struck me was how they wear their colonialism on their sleeve. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's multiple generations of it. It's multiple iterations of colonialism that are there and they're right mm-hmm. out front. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But everything's existing alongside each other. So you have, you know, um, the Cathedral of St. Francis, and then you have the Native American Art Institute right across right the street. Across the street. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, oh, this is great. <laughs> and, you know, and Willa Cather, and then after the death comes for the Archbishop, her, my Antonia, which yeah. you know, a lot of people will say is one of her seminal works. I mean, that is one of the most heartfelt books about love and family that I've ever read. So you feel, um, sorry to jump in here, but, um, you know, these are two classics. They're part of the canon, the American literary canon, because, you know, I, Death Comes from the Archbishop came out in the 1920s. I think it just fell out of copyright. Um, and I don't know, my Antonio is probably somewhere around there. Do you feel the stories still hold up, that you can still pull something from this story in 2023? Oh, totally. I feel like they have even more importance to our time now. We talked a little bit about living in an age of constant disruption. Mm-hmm. You know, the from the 1880s through World War II was a time of massive disruption in the United States. Um, much of it brought about, you know, of course, by the hangover from the Civil War and trying to figure that out. Yeah. Um, and an increasing reckoning with the basic injustice that our country was founded upon and trying to figure out how to work through that. Some people trying to work through it, some actively working against it. Um, but also the social upheaval that was going on, you know, we had the industrial revolution, not only enabled increases in economic production, but it enabled increases in people's individual leisure time, their ability to, choose their own adventure, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that was both positive and negative. So I think, you know, that time, you also find this in um, Sherwood Anderson, 
Mm-hmm. Another one of my favorite authors. This sense of collective change yielding individual isolation and just a lot of searching and not a lot of finding. Right. Just a right. lot of searching. Not so much achieving, but just stumbling forward while everything is changing around you. Yeah. So that could be one of the reasons why it's still relevant, right? Is that the the answers aren't found. And we're all searching, right? Yeah, and that's one of the things that I really love about Miyazaki as well, especially with his films that deal with ecological collapse, is they never end on a happy note. They end on a note of, let's get to work. Mm. Which, that's the, you know, my Antonia ends the same way. It doesn't end with resolution and a reuniting of a past love. It ends up with a recognition that, that was great while it was going on, but now I have to move forward and we'll move forward in a new way together. You know, and that's, that's a lot of, I think, what culturally we're dealing with now. It's like our world is changing so fast. How do we collectively understand that and support each other through it? You know, well, you know, one of the things that strikes me, you know, Willa Cather and Sherwood Anderson both kind of, you know, their themes are global. Their themes are big, but their settings tend to be small. Winesburg, Ohio, right? You know, small town, you know, and that, and we can kind of relate to that, that these big things do impact our lives at a very local level. Even if we live in a community of 400 people, right? Yeah. Um, those same things come across. Um, I do want to ask this question, Paul, because you, you mentioned Hayam uh, Miyazaki and, you know, Willa Cather in like within two minutes of each other. So you <laughs> obviously read very varied literature, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, I try to. I mean, you know, when I was in high school, I either read or I skated or I hiked. Those were the three things that I did. Yeah. And, you know, I early on, you know, I, I was raised a Catholic, so I was always kind of looking for that, you know, guilt serum, <laughs> you know, to process the, uh, the cognitive dissonance that, uh, I baptized within and, um, you know, really early discovered, um, you know, Joseph Campbell and a lot of that pan mythology business. Right. And so ever since then, I think I've just loved being able to link the disparate into like, Oh, these are the same thing. It's all the same leap motif. They're all just rolling together. Just different words. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you get willa cather and star wars in the same yeah. same sentence there you uh, go. I'm, I'm i'm still thinking i'm still thinking about the richard scary comment because uh, as when i was a kid that i loved his books and so did you share those with your kids too i'm imagining you oh did. yes they deep within scary as well as any little kid. I mean, it's one of the gifts along with, uh, for people that have kids, of course, it's going to be good night moon. Right. And then Richard scary's compendium. Those are the two you're like, and you will enjoy those times of being able to read to a child or some of the most glorious moments in life. Oh, so true. Definitely. So true. Well, Paul, this has been a delight to talk with you and learn more about you and, get some great book recommendations. So thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. 
Yeah. We really appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for asking. And thanks, Doug, for facilitating. Shout out to neighbor. Shout out to producer Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Producer Doug, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast. Please remember you can find us on our Instagram page at O2Starve or our website, oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you're reading these days. And until next time, take good care. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.